today, our beatitude is blessed are the peacemakers. Now remember, blessed can mean happy, but not just happy from our subjective standpoint. It's happy from God's standpoint, meaning from God's position or perspective, you're in an enviable position. Well done. Congratulations. Fortunate. Or as one writer put it, you lucky bum. Like when your coworker wins a year's supply of free guac at Chipotle and you think, you punk, blessed are you. What's so startling with these phrases is they're exactly the opposite of what we would think a blessed life is. Fortunate, well done are you when you get free food or when your kids get into an Ivy League school or when you claw your way to the top and get that job. But Jesus, in these memorable words, turns all that upside down. He says the opposite of all we have been conditioned to value in our culture. Right on are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Congratulations to you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. Fortunate are you who show mercy to others. And this Blessed or commendable are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, often when we think about peace or peacemaker, we think of one of these three contexts, either peace in the sense of absence of war as a nation, or peace in the sense of inner tranquility, I'm at peace with that decision I've made. Or peacemaker in the sense of someone who is good at resolving conflict, either by keeping the peace or by helping mediate conflict between two opposing parties. And in each one of these cases, the concept of peace may be included in what Jesus is saying, but it isn't all that Jesus is saying here. So let me start by clearing up some misconceptions about peacemaking, because I don't think we're going to be able to hear what Jesus is really saying until we do. When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he does not mean peacekeepers, as in those who keep the peace, who don't rock the boat or never make any waves. He is not saying, keep your head down and don't speak honestly about what you say. He is not saying, blessed are the appeasers, For often appeasing others, saying what they want to hear, doesn't resolve conflict, it just postpones it. Actually, if we look at Jesus' life, we'll see sometimes it was exactly his intention to rock the boat. The boat needed some rocking. Remember his reaction to the people making a profit and selling merch in the temple? Just for some fun, track Jesus' language uh, for the religious leaders throughout the Gospels, or even one Gospel, or even just Matthew chapter 23. You brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, you hypocrites. If Jesus took a conflict resolution type indicator, I'm guessing he would not score as the conflict avoidant. In fact, when someone acts as if everything is okay just to keep the peace, The Bible has a phrase for that, false prophet. Ezekiel 13.10 and Jeremiah 6.14 both give harsh words for false prophets who speak peace, peace, where there is no peace. 
They're plastering over cracked walls. They're putting band-aids over deep wounds. And the prophets who did that were not blessed. They were cursed. Peacemaking is not the same as peacekeeping. And yet, it is also true. Jesus did exercise restraint when addressing opposition. And this is what I want us to see today. That peacemaking Jesus' way involves both a negative aspect as well as a positive aspect. It involves something we do not do, us being passive in a way, as well as something we do do, something we actively work towards. It must be both. Maybe this example from our city's recent history will help. Back in 2020, when our city was burning in the riots following George Floyd's murder, we saw two extreme responses. On the one extreme, some people felt like we must fight for justice using all the resources available to us, including violence, regardless of whether people get hurt or property gets damaged. In fact, maybe that'll get their attention. For these people, the desire for justice took precedence over the desire for peace. On the other extreme, and in response to that, some people felt like it's never right to injure others or property. Civil unrest isn't justice or peace. For these people, the desire for peace took precedence over the desire for justice. Now, thankfully, as you know, many people espoused a third position, which embraced the call for justice as well as peace through nonviolent resistance. These people agreed things must change. We must fight for justice, but we will not use violence or force to do so. These were the silent, peaceful protesters obeying curfews set by authorities, working hard to bring about the ideal they believed in, but exercising restraint in how they did that. Similarly, when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he intends to convey both a negative aspect, a way in which we don't do it or are passive, as well as a positive aspect, a goal for which we are to be striving and actively working towards. Jesus intends for us to hold both. But that will only make sense if we understand the context in which Jesus says these words and the biblical meaning of peace, which is what we're going to do today. Because the implications for us holding both of these include examples like racial justice, but honestly extend far beyond that as well, into the boardroom as well as the classroom, on Insta as well as in the kitchen. The good news for us today is that into this deeply divided world, peacemaking is not only a possibility, but a dignified vocation you and I are called to live into. So what is peacemaking and how do we do it? Let's start with the negative or passive meaning first. And to do that, we've got to look at the context in which Jesus shares these words. Before Jesus utters these words, he's been getting some attention. Matthew 4, 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. You heal my diseases and I think you've gained a hearing with me. But what's this good news of the kingdom? Look back earlier 
Matthew 4, 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Equally translated, the kingdom of God is here. Now, what does he mean by kingdom? For starters, the world into which Jesus came had been waiting a long time for a prophet to come to bring about God's kingdom. Israel was the underdog, the tiny country oppressed by Rome, waiting for the one to come who would bring revolution and change and justice for Israel. When he came, it was believed he would help Israel conquer their enemies by force. He would rally the troops, take back Jerusalem, and usher in God's kingdom, God's justice, through them. It might be bloody, but it'd be worth it. Occasionally, in the biographies of Jesus, you'll see people with this persuasion crop up. They're called nationalists or Jewish zealots. It's into that world that Jesus shows up doing some of the very things the prophets foretold this one would do, teaching with authority, influencing crowds, having God-like powers and abilities. But there's also some dissonance. He doesn't fit the picture exactly. And as his life unfolds, that becomes increasingly clear, frustratingly clear to those who were waiting for revolution. Instead of bolstering supplies, he rides a donkey into Jerusalem, not exactly a ruler stallion of choice. He murmurs something about being gentle and humble in heart. At the exact moment of his arrest, when you'd think he'd want to evade the authorities, he instructs his right-hand man, Peter, put away your sword when Peter puts up a fight. And frankly, this is confusing. Even John the Baptist, a prophet himself, is confused. There's this beautiful record of this in Matthew 11, 2 through 6. John's in prison. They're calling for his head. His days are numbered. And he sends a messenger to Jesus. He's just got to know. I thought we'd be overtaking our enemies by now, Jesus. Are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? That's a loaded question. Jesus, sympathetic to John's disillusionment, tells the messenger, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. I'm going to come back to that later. But essentially, I know what you're expecting, John. But that's not the way my kingdom works. Blessed are the peacemakers. Against a militaristic, nationalistic view of kingdom, Jesus ushers in his kingdom, not with force or coercion, but rather with blessing, with healing, with acts of mercy, with sacrificial love. Jesus' entire life and ministry right up until his last breath was characterized by pouring out love for others at great cost to himself. The one who had 10,000 angels at his disposal restrained from calling on them when the crowd called for his execution. He had an angry mob at his disposal. He could have persuaded them to overthrow Caesar, but he didn't. When Jesus flexed his omnipotent muscles, this is what it looked like. Dying on a cross. No wonder he shall be called the Prince of Peace. 
Jesus refused to have his kingdom associated with coercion or force. So the first observation of peacemakers is that we go about God's work without the use of violence or force. Our means of doing God's work in the world is sacrificial love poured out for others, often at grace cost to ourselves. Lesson number one in peacemaking is not only to do the right thing, but to do it in the right way. We are to go about making peace the way Jesus did. So let me ask, by the way of application, is there any place in our lives where we are seeking God's work by force or coercion? Because if so, maybe that isn't actually God's kingdom, but someone else's. Peacemaking is first negative, passive. We restrain from using violence or coercion to promote God's way in the world. But, and this is critical, that doesn't mean we don't work for change. There's a positive aspect to the peacemaking. There's something we are to be very active in doing. And that can only happen as we understand the word peace Jesus uses here, which is why I want to spend the remainder of our time doing that. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Interestingly, this is the only time this word as a noun occurs in the entire Bible. Maker's pretty straightforward, one who creates or brings something about. But peace, this is a little bit more challenging to describe. It's a translation of the robust Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is a power-packed, beautiful word, and it's key to what Jesus means here. So hang with me for several moments while I try to do it justice. Shalom is used a lot in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, as they dreamed about a day when God would finally set the world right. It means wholeness, flourishing, the way things are supposed to be. Maybe this image will help. When our kids were little, the house we lived in had this desk at the top of the upstairs hallway. And actually, as you can see, it was a long row. And so we had three different desks there, <laughs> taped off with division for each one of them. Over time, as happens with young children, their tchotchke would pile up and we wouldn't have time to put it away science experiments and Crayola markers and birthday party gifts and all of that. And soon enough, this is what you would end up with. This is anti-shalom. Then we'd say, this is driving us, I would say, this is driving me nuts. We've got to put this away. I can't walk by this anymore. And however many hours and recycling or garbage bags later, shalom. Anti-shalom, shalom. Now, it's one thing when markers and desk items get disordered. It is quite another when desires and behaviors do. The prophets in the Old Testament were well acquainted with the many ways in which life can get out of order. Greed, strife, injustice, oppression, destruction, so they used as many metaphors as they could to describe the long-awaited day of the Lord when God would come and clean it up once and for all, when life as it was intended to be reigned. Here's just a few. 
Isaiah 2.4. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Isaiah 11, 6 and 7. The wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. Or this, never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. Or this, the desert and the wilderness will be glad. It will blossom profusely. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. We've heard that before. And one more, my favorite, which I remind you of often. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Shalom has come in all its fullness, baby. May it be so. Cornelius Cornelius planting his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, has been one of the most influential for me in understanding sin and shalom. When you know what shalom can be, you long for it. You grieve and mourn the breaking of shalom. He defines shalom as the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. It's a fourfold harmony of people with themselves, with others, with God, and with all creation, the earth. I want to read one extended description from Plantica on what a modern-day shalom would look like in society. Now, keep in mind, this is from 1995. So some illustrations are dated, but some concepts, like racism, are still sadly very relevant. He proposes, Shalom would include, for instance, strong marriages and secure children. Nations and races in this brave new world would treasure differences in other nations and races as attractive, important, complementary. In the process of making decisions, men would defer to women and women would defer to men until a crisis arose. Then, with good humor all around, the person more naturally competent in the area of the crisis would resolve it to the satisfaction and pleasure of both. Government officials would take office. Somebody has to decide which streets are clean on Tuesday and which on Wednesday. But to nobody's surprise, they would tell the truth and freely praise the virtues of other public officials. Public telephone books would be left intact. Highway overpasses would be free of graffiti. Tow truck drivers and airing motors would be serene on inner city streets. (laughs) Business associates would rejoice in one another's promotions. Harvard students would respect students at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople and would actually seek to learn from them. Intercontinental ballistic missile silos would be converted into training tanks for scuba divers. All around the world, people would stimulate and encourage one another's virtues. Newspapers, we might say Twitter feeds today, would be filled with well-written accounts of acts of great moral beauty. And at the end of the day, people on their porches would read these and savor them and call out to one another about them. (laughs) Are Are you paying attention? I mean, that is insane. Plantica sounds like he's on another planet, right? 
but that's shalom. What we actually experience most of the time is anti-shalom. Now here's how this all fits together. Shalom is related to the idea of kingdom that Jesus talks about. When Jesus begins his ministry by announcing the good news of the kingdom, this is it. He's saying the long-awaited day when God will set the world right begins now. The kingdom is here. God's shalom has begun on earth, and while it isn't the norm everywhere, we can get glimpses of it here and now. Maybe this diagram from Pastor and Professor Daryl Johnson will help. This is a big picture overview of God's dealing with humanity. The timeline begins on the left with God creating the heavens and the earth and humanity within it, Genesis 1 and 2, and leads to, on the far right, God recreating the heavens and earth with humanity in it, Revelation 21, 22. So on the left, we begin with God creating us. And you, I don't know if you can see the arrows. It's kind of down. We go down. Um, God creates us. This beautiful picture in Genesis 1 and 2 of shalom. People are in harmony with one another, with God, with creation, with themselves. And then we move to what we call the fall. This sad and tragic decision for human beings to do it alone. To not let God be God, we will take care of ourselves. Thank you very much. And it is at that point that we experience God's mercy and grace. Because if you read Genesis 3, no sooner had we rebelled, disrupting shalom in every way, that he makes the promise to one day come and undo the ruin we have caused. We call this salvation history. We read about this in the rest of Genesis 3 up until Revelation. And all of this is clearly leading up to, on the far right there, the day of the Lord that I've tried to describe where God would radically intervene in history and bring his plan to fulfillment, where sin would be removed, where evil would be eradicated, where death would be defeated, and when the kingdom of God in the heavens would come into this earth. Now, this is the gospel Jesus announces. Ahead of that great day, I think there's a cross coming. Yes. Jesus himself comes into the world and brings his kingdom. This cross represents everything about Jesus' life, ministry, teaching, death, resurrection, ascension back to heaven. And when Jesus announces the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying this day of the Lord has come ahead of time, ahead of schedule. It's happening in me. Friends, in Jesus and because of Jesus, God's future shalom is spilling into our present. It is as if the goodness of heaven is invading earth. Every miracle Jesus did was to point to that reality. That's why John, in his gospel, calls his miracles signs. They are signposts pointing to a deeper reality than just what is seen. We know God's shalom isn't fully here yet. That won't happen until he comes a second time and restores this world for good. But in Jesus, and because of Jesus, we experience foretaste now. That is why when John the Baptist asks, are you the one who was to come or someone else coming? Because you don't fit the picture of all we expected. Jesus answers by quoting this Old Testament passage, looking to that great day of the Lord. Read the signs, John. The blind see, 
the deaf hear, the lame leap, the mute speak. You know what that means. I am the one. The day of the Lord starts now. So when Jesus says, blessed are the shalom makers, he's saying the kingdom has come. The kingdom is coming. Will you in the meantime join me in making it happen? Which is why when Jesus teaches his followers to pray in Matthew 6.10, he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. That's our job, to join God in seeing his beautiful shalom flourishing for all human beings on this earth as it already is in heaven, as it will be when he eventually returns. Jesus transferred all power and authority to us when he ascended and returned to heaven. If shalom's going to happen in this world, it's going to be through us. Blessed are the shalom makers, for they and they alone, the text language emphasizes, are children of God. They look like their daddy. They're doing what Jesus did. I can see the resemblance. Do you see now how shalom-making, peace-making, is multifaceted, interdisciplinary work that is all-encompassing. It's bringing healing or flourishing or wholeness to people, physically, emotionally, intellectually, psychologically, ecologically, interpersonally, as well as spiritually. And do you now see why the absence of war is not a big enough vision for shalom-making? Peace, shalom, only happens when the causes of strife have ceased. Peace or resolving conflict is great, but what if we lived in such a world that we never had any conflict to begin with? Permit me to riff on this a bit more so you can begin to hear how God wants to use you to make shalom in your spheres of influence. Every time you or I bring physical or emotional flourishing to another human being, we join God in his work of shalom making. Thank you, health care professionals and mental health care providers. Every time you or I listen attentively to a human being made in God's image and respond with words of comfort that are actually true, not trite, we join God in his work of shalom making. Every time you or I show people how to cooperate together instead of competing or fighting, we join God in his work of shalom making. Every time you or I push corporations towards transparency and accountability so our businesses are ethical and humane, we join God in his work of shalom making. Let's press in a little bit more. This isn't comprehensive, but I want to stimulate your thinking. When you give up one week's vacation to serve under-resourced people in other countries with whatever skill or trade you have, you are a shalom maker. When you, a teenager, use resources sparingly so as to care for this good world God has made, you are a shalom maker. When you, as an office worker in the break room, stand up for the coworker everyone else is dissing, you are a shalom maker. When you volunteer with an organization that provides respite care for parents who are in a hard place with the explicit goal of reunification of children and parents, you are a shalom maker. You know who you are. Every sleepless night, 
yields a little more shalom in this world. Blessed are you. Blessed are you, urban promise of Camden, New Jersey, for you're coming alongside kids in one of the poorest zip codes of the country to climb out of poverty by giving them a high school and college graduation with startling results. Blessed are you, office staff at Justice Page Middle School, for driving Chromebooks and food to kids in the middle of a pandemic so their needs were met. Blessed are you, parents of young children, for your patience and grace and self-control day in and day out so that when your children hear that God is good and loving, they might actually believe he is because of how you've looked at them and how you have loved them. Blessed are you, little old you, at Thanksgiving dinner with family members when you redirect the conversation from what you know is going to be a train wreck. Blessed are you, shalom maker. Do you see how shalom making is the vocation of every follower of Jesus? There is simply no space free from the potential of shalom making. In our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, this church, our city, this nation, on social media, yes, even our Twitter witness can be shalom making. We can all do this. And we must do this. This is what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the shalom makers. The kingdom is here. We can live by its rules and way, not by the anti-shalom all around us. That's Jesus' message in these Beatitudes. Live in such a way that your presence matters and shapes the outcome. Or as he'll say a few verses later in Matthew 5, 14 to 16, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others. Light up this dark place. Make shalom in anti-shalom. And so City Church, whose vision for over 16 years has been to seek the peace, the shalom, and welfare of the city, how will we do it? How is God inviting you to be a shalom maker in this world? How might he be inviting us as a church to seek the peace, to work towards peace in this city? Jesus came announcing this good news, the kingdom of God is here. May God help us to live in such a way that others can see and experience that kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, Prince of Peace, I can't do it justice. <laughs> How we long for your kingdom to come fully on this earth as it is in heaven. Bring your shalom. Thank you that you have started that work in Jesus. Thank you that you will one day complete it. And in the meantime, let us be your agents of peace. Wherever you have called us, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.